Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it up there to 2 Chronicles chapter 6. And you can also uh, do as I'm doing right now, which is put a bookmark in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to end there this morning, uh, though we'll spend the majority of our time um, working off of this verse right here in 1 Chronicles. And by first, I mean 2 Chronicles chapter 6. We are in an extension of a series that was entitled Prayer. We're now in week two of the extension. The first four weeks were about internal transformative prayer. And then last week, we began to look at the corporate prayer of Solomon in front of the entire assembly of Israel. And the reason we're studying this prayer is because we want to understand what was in the prayer because we would love to see what happened at the end of the prayer, which was the fire of God, the good fire, falling down from heaven uh, and signifying his presence, and then the glory of the Lord filling the temple, uh, and then the nation of Israel just lying face down on the ground under the presence of God. And so uh, we want to we, we study the prayer to see how it is that the prayer ended like that. As I mentioned last week, that is a good day at church when you end up like that. And last week, if I could summarize the idea, it was this, that humility precipitates movement of God. Humility precipitates movement. And so all humility for the believer starts at the cross. We're humbled before the cross by his, uh, his sacrifice for us, his perfection, our sinlessness, but Christ taking that upon himself so that we might be saved. Now, after uh, humility, or I guess in line with humility, then precipitating movements, uh, the, the doctrine uh, that kind of builds that is this, this statement that Solomon had, which was that there's no one like our God. There's no one like our God. And because there's no one like our God, we humble ourselves down before him. Now, this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at Solomon's second really strong, definitive, doctrinal um, idea presented in the prayer, and it's posed in a question. And here's the question. This is in verse 18 of the prayer. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Simple question, right? But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? And this morning what I want to do is I want to answer the question, and I want to answer the question um, in five phases, because I believe that uh, that is the arch or the storyline of the scripture is about answering this question. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? So let's look at the question first. Why is the question even necessary? It's necessary in Solomon's perspective because it seems like there there might be a disconnect between God and what's going on in earth. A, A disconnect that has existed since the garden in one fashion. Now, another reason that Solomon would ask the question is probably just contemporary to his time uh, that everybody had their view of God. Now, of course, Solomon wasn't around during the Romans and the Greeks who also had their view of God, but the pantheists existed uh, really since the beginning and they had their view of God. And there was, of course, idolatrous views of God in Solomon's own time. And this, I, these different ideas about God and his relationship with humanity and the very earth. The question, but will God? Now let's clarify that the God that Solomon is talking about is the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament, who is the same God of the New Testament, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That God who spoke creation into existence, the only one and true God, not some modern distortion of that God, not some God that you make up on your own, the God of the Bible, the God that created the heavens and the earth. Will that God dwell, inhabit, live, have his presence with humanity? The question originated right in the garden in the garden, we see that uh, sin entered into the world or a lack of holiness entered into the world. And what humanity did in that moment was disconnect itself from God. The, the phrase in the Bible is that uh, man hid from the presence of God. 
See, our human brains are intelligent enough to have these natural responses. And sin, or the natural response to sin, is then to hide ourselves from that which is holy. And that's exactly what humanity did in the garden. It hid itself from that which was holy, God. And so now the question is, well, will God indeed dwell with sinful man? And our position here as a church is that we as humans are born in sin. We are inherently sinful, born totally depraved with a sinful nature, that we are not just good people trying to get better. We don't just add a little bit of the Bible onto what is generally uh, us being pretty good. No, we are dead in sin, but Christ in his mercy and his grace from his work on the cross pours his salvation out on us and then raises us to life. This is the gospel. And so will God, the perfect holy God of the Bible, dwell, live with, or make his presence known to sinful humanity on earth? On earth, not some distant land, not something else, but earth right here. Where you and I live, the one that he created, not just will we be able to dwell with God someday in a distant place, will God have to recreate something that isn't broken by the curse of sin where he can spend time with us, but will he do it here on earth? And so there's the question. Will the one true God make his presence known to sinful humanity right here? I want to answer that question for you this morning because I think in the answer to that question, we see God's view of his relationship with humanity and what he wants to do in the world. Will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Answer number one, yes. All five of them is yes, by the way. Yes through Christophany or theophany. Let me explain these words. These are physical manifestations of God or a pre-incarnate Christ prior to his birth. The theophany representing God, a Christophany representing Christ. Said another way, it's Jesus in a Christophany, like here on earth before he was incarnate as man around the Christmas story. It's God showing up in a somewhat of a physical form on earth. Now, if this sounds confusing to you, I want to point out a few of these for you in the scripture. And the first one is exactly where you think it would be in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is when sin enters into the world and man hides himself from the presence of God. And we get to see God answer the question, will he dwell with man on earth? Or will he now run from man because man is sinful, because man knows good and evil, because man is now unholy and has abused the Imago Dei, the, the fact that they were created in the image of God by bringing sin into existence, right? Will God dwell with them? Yes. Yes, he does. In, in fact, what it says in Genesis 3 is that then that the, the God shows up. By the way, most pre, uh, prevalent in your scripture are these two phrases that indicate that a theophany or Christophany is happening. The angel of the Lord, that phrase, or the Lord God. The Lord God, and, and always the Lord, L-O-R-D, will be capitalized when it is referencing one of these. And so, yes, God will show up, and he will show up in these ways, and he did show up in this way in Genesis chapter 3. And so God plants himself right in the middle of humanity's mess in Genesis chapter 3, the first theophany. It's arguable whether it's not, it's actually a Christophany, like was that Jesus showing up in the garden, or was it God, the Father, showing up in the garden? We don't exactly know, but one of them showed up answering the question. And what does God do in that moment? In Genesis chapter 3, 14, he says, I will put enmity between you and the serpent, between your offspring and her offspring. He's talking to Eve and he's saying, one day Eve's descendants will crush the serpent, will crush Satan. He's making a promise of redemption. And so what uh, the first, and by the way, first are always important in the scripture. Genesis three fourteen is known as the proto-gospel, the first picture of the gospel. One of my favorite preachers says this, there are indeed two sections of the Bible, Genesis chapter one through Genesis 3.14, and then the rest of it. And every, not everything, but a lot of what we need to know about the world and the earth and humanity is found in Genesis chapters one, two, and three. 
Someday we'll do a full series, maybe a full year on those three chapters because there's so much in there telling us what life is really like, what the world is really like. And so here, though, God is telling us what he's really like. When sin breaks in, he steps in. That's a good God. And so that's the first of these theophanies in the scriptures. The first way God answers the question, he shows up in the middle of the mess and he promises redemption. In Genesis chapter 18, we see another one. It's this interaction between Abraham and God. And God shows up in some um, physical form. Most people think that this is a Christophany. And so it's actually like Jesus showing up in a physical form, having a conversation with Abraham. And in that conversation, he promises Isaac. He promises their son who the line would carry through, the promise that God had made through Abraham, that the whole world would be blessed through his seed. And so, will God show up in the earth? Yes, he does. And what does he do in that moment? He promises salvation. A little bit later in the scriptures in Judges chapter 6, this is one of my favorite ones, uh, the Israelites are in captivity. I believe it's to the Philistines. And every time the Israelites would like grow some crops, the Philistines would come in and steal them all, like the, like the kid in the lunchroom taking your lunch. And they would come in and they would steal all the Israelites' food and they were living in poverty and they were living in slavery. And there's this one guy, his name is Gideon, and an angel of the Lord shows up. This is uh, fully believed almost by everybody that this is a Christophany. And so Jesus shows up and he looks at little Gideon. Gideon actually calls himself little. He says, I'm just this forgotten guy. I don't have any power. Nobody knows who I am. I don't even know why you have chosen to show up to me. And Jesus calls him a, a valiant warrior. And he tells him that if he'll follow him, uh, that he's gonna lead the Israelites into Freedom. And the whole story of the angel of the Lord showing up here is just this picture of the, of the coming church. And in that story, um, Gideon, who thinks of himself as, as weak and powerless, um, begins to build an army to go fight with them. But what God does is he keeps taking the army that is big and he keeps making it smaller and smaller. Now, last week I introduced this phrase that the season that we're in right now as a church is deeper, not wider that we want to go deeper into our love for God, not wider in our love for many things, that we want to go deeper in our understanding of the Scripture, not wider in just kind of understanding certain things, and we want to go deeper into our love for God, deeper into the presence of God. And what is happening in this particular Christophany is Jesus is showing a picture of a church or a picture of the church that goes deeper instead of wider and how it actually has more power than being wider instead of deep. For us, this is a reminder then that, uh, that if we want to see God do what he did through Gideon, which is bring salvation and delivery, then the path to that is deeper, not wider. And so this is what happens in that next one. And then I just got one more for you because it's really fun. This is a, a fourth um, theophany. This one in particular, I believe, is a Christophany, and it is in 2 Kings chapter 19. And here's the story. The nation of, I believe it's Assyria, is gathered around the Israelites, like hundreds of thousands of them, and Israel is done. They are toast. Like, there is no way that they're going to survive. And their king at the time is a guy by the name of Hezekiah. And I bring this one up because Hezekiah does something similar to what Solomon did. And then he begins to pray a corporate prayer for the nation of Israel. This series is all tied into what does it look like when the church begins to pray as the church is supposed to pray. And so Hezekiah steps up and he begins to pray this corporate prayer uh, about uh, God deliver us from this overwhelming opposition. There is no hope, it seems, right now from a worldly perspective. Uh, We can't see how light is going to win. And in the darkness of night, in a response to the prayer of a weakened Israel, Christophany, Jesus shows up, and he shows up in a really fun form. He slaughters 185,000 of the enemy soldiers in the night. It's a picture of when the church looks like it is powerless and that there is no hope that when it understands the power of Jesus, that victory can happen in the darkest hour. 
It is a reminder to us that nothing or that not all is lost when Christ is the head of his army or his church. And so Jesus sweeps in and he frees the nation. Now in this first answer to the question, these theophanies or these Christophanies, Jesus was, or, or, or the father, whichever one it was, would kind of show up, do something incredible, and then he would be gone, at least in that way. And then he would typically speak through his prophets to the nation. So it was in, and then out, and in, and then out. Now, at some point, we get to answer number two. Answer number two, will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Yes, by his presence in the tabernacle and the temple. And so iteration one here are these theophanies or Christophanies. Iteration two uh, has an A and a B. And it was first the tabernacle. Now what the tabernacle was, that was just the first ever portable church. And so if any of you were with us back in our portable days of setting up and tearing down, that's what the tabernacle was. As the children of Israel were uh, working their way through the wilderness, God had established this system, the tabernacle. And, And then he put over the tabernacle the priesthood of Aaron. And in the moment that the tabernacle was finished and the priesthood of Aaron was dedicated, something happens. A fire falls down from heaven, exactly as it had happened in the temple that we had read about in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Now, of course, this predates, the tabernacle predates the temple. And so the tabernacle is established, the priesthood of Aaron uh, is dedicated, the fire of God falls, and the tabernacle is to serve as the place where humanity meets with God. And then when God would move the Israelite people, uh, they would pack up the tabernacle and they would move to the next place. And then uh, they would set it all up again. And, and there was a system then of sacrifice and offering. And then the, the priests would go into the Holy of Holies and, and would experience the presence of God for the people. And this happens for a while in the tabernacle. Now, after the fire fell establishing like God saying, yep, this is me. This is good. I I approve of what's happening here. The very next story, fire falls again. But this is not the good fire. This is a bad fire. In the very next story, there's two individuals and uh, they they abuse the, the law of the tabernacle. And as they're abusing the law of the tabernacle, in essence, being unholy, fire falls from heaven and consumes them. Gone. And then the very next line, God speaks something of sanctification and holiness. Now this, by the way, is the stories about the Old Testament that make some people go, well, that's not the God I know. No, no. It's the God you've probably made up, right? That wouldn't be that holy or care about holiness that much. And so God shows us something when he shows up there. He says, he formed the tabernacle. He formed the tabernacle so that his presence could be known. But he's tying in exactly as he did in the first one. The presence of God and holiness are intricately connected. In the first one, sin enters into the world. God shows up and he promises a redeemer. He reinstills the presence of God. In the second one, now the tabernacle, we see these stories. And then to be, the answer is the temple. Eventually, they don't need the temporary place anymore. They need the permanent tabernacle. And so the tabernacle, I'm sorry, the permanent temple. And so Solomon builds the temple. And that's the, what we're reading right now in Second Chronicles. That's the moment when the temple is being dedicated and the temple is dedicated and the fire of God falls again as if God is saying, yes, I approve of this. And before then was a moment of sacrifices and, and holiness again being reinstated in the nation and then being dropped to their faces. And we'll get into later a famous prayer that is prayed out of this, that if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek his face, then God will move, right, and heal their land. You probably heard that one. It comes out of this moment. So humility precipitates movement. So too does holiness. Holiness working its way through the people of God. And so here we see the first two answers to the question, 
Now, these first two answers, by the way, span a period of time of a couple thousand years. A couple thousand years where the question, will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Well, how will he do it? And God answers the question. And then we get to the third answer. And the third answer sits historically right now, like, like even from a time perspective, like right in the middle of the five answers. And so the first two answers that I've just explained then give way to the third answer. And the third answer is yes in the person of Jesus. Will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Yes in the person of Jesus, right in the middle of the story. Now we see in the first two that the, uh, the theophanies were kind of uh, like they would happen and then there would be some distance. The, the, the tabernacle was temporary. It'd be set up and then reset up. The temple was a more permanent structure, but it was still kind of um, uh, in their ideas, like withheld to this certain place. But now we get to iteration number three, and it's Jesus. It's God incarnate. And we believe that God is, uh, Jesus was both fully God and fully man. And so I'm going to save you reading the Christmas story because I'm sure you probably know it. But the story is that God comes down to earth as a human, in human form, in the form of Jesus. And Jesus himself says, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father, right? He basically saying, if you've seen me, you've seen God. And so will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Yes, in human form. And then what did Jesus do as he was God on earth? See, there's a, a modern picture of this Jesus and the modern picture goes something like this. It's a wrong picture. Let me just preface that. That Jesus was a, a, a good teacher. That Jesus was a philosopher. Um, that Jesus um, was, was just a, a picture of, of sacrificial love. He's just a picture, like a cosmic example of what it means to be a good person. But, but the modern picture of Jesus is, uh, is that he doesn't really care too much about sin. That he doesn't care too much about infringement upon a holy God. And this Jesus, by the way, does not exist in the scriptures. This Jesus is just uh, something made up. In, uh, and, and it's not like altogether new, like, like in the last 10 years. This has been happening um, really since Jesus uh, left earth. Uh, but people have been trying to skew this picture of Jesus. For the Jesus in the scripture said that he came as a payment for sin. Not as an example of, of what not sinning looks like, but as a payment for sin. Because sin is an affront against a holy God. And Jesus came as the payment for that sin. Second Corinthians, Paul would write it this way. He would say, he that knew no sin, Jesus, became sin or took all of sin upon himself on the cross so that we who knew sin could become his holiness or righteousness. This is the picture of the gospel. Jesus' holiness becomes ours and our sinfulness becomes his on the cross. So will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Yes, he will in the form of Jesus. To do what? To reestablish holiness that was lost in the garden and to reinstitute the presence of God in the lives of people. This is the story all through the journey, all along, God working all the way through. And when Jesus was on the earth, by the way, he said some interesting things. One of the things he said to this woman uh, at a well he said, before Abraham was, I was. And everyone goes, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Before Abraham was, I was. And then what, what was he doing? He was pointing back to the fact that he did exist before Abraham. He had shown up in Christophonic form well before Abraham. Another thing he said is, you can destroy the temple, Solomon's temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. What is he doing? He's pointing back to answer number two. And he's showing, I have fulfilled answer number one, and I have fulfilled answer number two. Now, it might be easy for us to think, I mean, how could this get any better? How could it get any better than God on earth in human form, like right here with us? But Jesus actually tells us it would get better. See, answer number four uh, is even in Jesus' own word, advantageous for us rather than him just being here physically on earth. 
Answer number four, will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Yes, he will. How? Through the Holy Spirit and the church. Through the Holy Spirit and the church. In John chapter 16, verse 7, it actually says this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go, the helper will not come. Who's the helper? The Holy Spirit. Jesus actually says, answer number four is better than answer number three. Better than me being here is the Holy Spirit being here. And so in John chapter 16, while Jesus is still alive before his crucifixion, he predicts answer number four, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then on what we celebrate or recognize today as Pentecost Sunday, what Jesus predicted in John chapter 16 actually comes true in Acts chapter two. In Acts chapter two, then says this, Acts chapter two, verse four, it says, and then, or and they, they being the church, were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They, the church, were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, we continue to read in the story, and we see there that this particular gift of tongues was an ability to understand languages that they had never understood before. And people would say, aren't those guys, don't they speak this language? And how come I'm understanding in this language? And, And that's how the conversation goes. That the Holy Spirit fell in that moment, and it, and it filled each individual believer. And this is the first church here. And they're then empowered by the Spirit. Now, later, the Apostle Paul would reflect on what was now true of Christians and therefore the church collectively because of what had happened at Pentecost. And he would reflect on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul uh, is writing his letter to the church at Corinth and he's instructing them on what it means to be a church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul gives us a clearer picture of answer number 4 when he says this, do you, do you not know that you, and by the way, the, um, the you here is plural, and most commentators think that the, 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 the you is personal, like it is individual, but it's also corporate, that it is you, like the collective you, like me looking out right now and saying, don't you, don't you all, y'all. Do you not know that you are God's temple? What's he doing? He's taking us back to answer number two. Paul is picking up from where Jesus left off when he called himself the temple. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, because of what happened in Acts chapter two, verse four, on the day of Pentecost, don't you know that God's spirit dwells in you? Answer number four to the question, will God indeed dwell with man on earth is a building up. It is no longer random or sporadic. It is not a temporary building. It's not even a permanent space. It's not even a God in human form who's in one place at one time. Now it is the very spirit of God dwelling in you. In other words, answer number four to the question makes it as personal or more personal than it had been before, where now God hits or reaches or is in in each and every one of us. fourth progression of the answer to the question. And then look what Paul says next. Don't you realize, do you not know that you are God's temple? Let's just take a second. I mean, imagine how big the temple was of Solomon. Imagine how expensive the temple was. We know, we can read how expensive the temple was. And now God is saying that the, the, the same beauty, the same power that fell on that temple is now in you. It's in you. And then he goes on to say this. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Now, if I read this verse and said, where is it? Some of you would be like, I bet that's in Leviticus. That sounds like a Leviticus verse. Nope. This is in 1 Corinthians. This is 
post-ascension. This is writing to the church. You are the temple. And he who would destroy God's temple, God will destroy you. Now, some of you are heretics and you think, but that was Paul, okay? Nope, Paul wrote under the authority of the Holy Scripture. Those words are just as relevant as Jesus's. What's he saying? What's he saying? He's saying the Holy Spirit now lives in you. And what destroys the temple of God? We learned in the story of the tabernacle when those guys were unholy. What destroys it? Sin. A lack of holiness. Now, before I go on, let me say this. I know some of us grew up probably in environments where holiness felt more like Phariseeism than it felt like Christianity. Jesus was very clear on what he thought about Phariseeism, on what he thought about hypocrisy, on what he thought about appearing holy but not actually being holy. And so we need to separate what maybe um, we have as preconceived ideas of what holiness means, um, a set of unbiblical religious rules with an actual picture of what biblical holiness means, which is the Holy Spirit living in us. And a strong aversion to sin and to anything that would destroy the temple of God. Do you see the progression here? Sin enters into the world and God shows up and he says, don't worry, one day I'll take care of it. But he showed us who he was when he showed up in the middle of our mess. Then he gives us a portable tabernacle during the wilderness years so that our sins could be forgiven through our process and that the presence of God might be felt by the nation. Then a more permanent structure than Jesus himself, then the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in you and the Holy Spirit in the church. For later, Paul picks up, I'm sorry, Peter picks up on where Paul had left off here. He picks up and he begins to tell us what the conclusion of all of this is. And the conclusion of all of this is the picture of the church that we were supposed to see. And it's in 1 Peter chapter 2. And what happens here in 1 Peter chapter 2 is Peter's just laying out, this is what the church is supposed to look like because God is now dwelling in every member of it. This is what the church is supposed to look like as it comes together. And so I want to end today by just reading you a, a picture. And of course, the danger is this is 12 verses, and I could preach three more sermons out of it. But we're going to read through it. Because what it does is it shows us the, the picture we should strive for. of what it looks like God dwelling with man on earth. And then it also points us to the perfect picture later. Let me show you. First Peter chapter two. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Who's he talking to? Non-Christians? No. He's talking to the church. The words he uses are interesting. Put away hatred. Put away deceit. Like that desire in you to lie or to cover something up. Put away hypocrisy, which means it can't just be a fake holiness. It has to be a real holiness. Put away any fake holiness. Put away envy, like being envious of the world. Envious that, uh, look what that person has and they're not even following God. He says, put that away. Put away slander. I think that one he was talking about inside the church because he knew that the thing that can destroy the church more than anything else is it talking poorly about those who are parts of it. 
And so he says, go ahead and put all of that away. I think Peter is choosing his words carefully here. And he's saying, put away your hatred and your deceit and your hypocrisy, your fake holiness. Put away your desire for the world. Put away the disruptive behavior that you have one toward another. Put it all away. And instead do what? Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it... By it, you may grow up into salvation. Like newborn infants, okay? I had one of these a few months ago, so I understand the metaphor. Long for the pure spiritual milk. Long for the word of God. That by it, you may grow up into your salvation. In other words, do not stay right where you are. You are a temple of the living God. Now grow up into that salvation. If though, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In other words, if you have tasted it, you will long for it. If you don't long for it, then you probably haven't tasted it. But if you have tasted it, then like you were a newborn infant. And he's not talking to new believers here. He's talking to the most mature. I mean, these people have been Christians as long as anyone had been a Christian. And he's saying, long for it like you were brand new, like the zeal, like the passion, like the first breath that you took when you were dead in your sin. And then grace woke you up and you went, this is so good. He's saying, long for it like you did then. And the history of the church coming back alive is not because new people become Christians. The history of the church coming back alive is because those who were already in it began to long for the pure spiritual milk again. They began to long for it again. As if they began to say, I am sick of walking through my Christian life, forgetting that I am a temple. And although God doesn't burn us with fire anymore, he does something way worse. He lets us live in our apathy. So you better believe that the moment those two were burned by the fire, that the rest of the congregation of Israel went, whoa. Instead now, what we get is not a God who um, consumes with fire those who act with unholiness. Instead, what we get is just an apathetic dead picture of what God wanted. And so he says, wake up and long for it again. Long for the pure spiritual milk. If you've actually tasted it. As you come to him, because it always goes back to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You're being built up like a spiritual house. See, God no longer needed the temple. The temple was actually torn down shortly after Jesus' ascension. And he wasn't worried about the people rebuilding it because he had a better house now. And that was his church. You and me and his church throughout the generations. He says, you are being built up as a spiritual house, a spiritual house. We are not a practical house. We are not a physical house. We are not a house of this world. We are not brick and mortar, though we may have it. We are a spiritual house that operates out of spiritual principles with a spiritual supernatural power. said, you are being built up as a spiritual house. To what? To be a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. You all, we are all now the fulfillment. We are all then together to represent the priesthood of Jesus. Which means every one of us then is called to this. Not just some, all. 
You are being built up to be what? To be a royal priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So let me just ask you a question because you may know what happens in the Old Testament when you offer less than satisfactory sacrifices. It's not a good story. In Romans chapter 12, we are told that you are the sacrifice. And so what you can do this morning is ignore the teaching of Scripture, which says, offer yourself as an acceptable sacrifice, set apart unto God to pursue holiness, to be under the submission and the authority of Scripture. Or you can live in knowing defiance of Scripture and keep doing what you're doing. Keep sinning like you're sinning. Keep ignoring Scripture. Or you can become a royal priesthood. You can offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. By the way, when anyone ever says the Old Testament is outdated, the guys in the New Testament use the Old Testament. Behold, I'm, that's just a pet peeve. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Believe in Jesus. Doesn't matter how foolish the world thinks it is. You will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Let me summarize that for you. It's saying that in this last era, what might happen is people might get offended by Jesus. People might get offended by Jesus' words. People might get offended by the idea that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. People might get offended by the idea that Jesus said that sin must be paid for because it separates you from God. And some people might get offended that it was Jesus himself who said that one day he will come back and judge the world. This is not some Old Testament idea that sits in isolation, that there is a judgment day. No, it was the words of Jesus himself who said, I will come back and I will judge the world. The problem with the fake Jesus that the modernist creates is that they don't want him standing at the end saying, I'm going to judge who's in and who's out. But that's what he says. So because that's true, this is what he says to his church. But you, but you, church, you be a chosen race. You be a royal priesthood. You be a holy nation. You be a people for his own possession. That you might do what? That you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And you can only, you can only, you can only call people out of darkness if you're no longer living in it. It's why Paul in Ephesians even warns some of the believers. He says, you've been darkened. You've begun to believe that your sin isn't a big deal. You've been darkened. You can't call people into light in your own darkness. So he's saying, step up, church. Be the royal priesthood. Be the holy nation and call people out of darkness and call them into what? Call them into marvelous light. Because although the call of Christ and discipleship is to come to die, it is to come to die so that you may what? Truly live. Die, yes. Die to self. Yes, become holy. Yes, why? So that you might truly live because it is the only way to live because those living in blindness aren't actually living. Once you were not a people, once you were not a people, he's, he's referencing them back 
to the pre-church age, to their pre-salvation days. And he's saying, once you were just individuals and you were just living your life. And my friend, these words are true for us today, pre-salvation. Once we were just individuals who were living our lives. But now in Christ, now we are God's people. We are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I think the parentheses is this. You've received mercy. You've tasted that the Lord is God. Everything better be different now. Beloved, I urge you. I urge you. Do you see Peter and he's writing this? Church, believer, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. I urge you as people who your final destination is not what this world can produce. I urge you, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Stop loving this world. Stop celebrating sin. It wages war against your soul. It wages war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify the God on the day of visitation. See, be so good that even those who hate you would look in and go, I don't like them, but something seems to be different. And it's saying there that on the day when God comes back, when Jesus returns, they're going to go, ah, now I get why that person was doing that. And do you see here in the end how it's pointing us? How it's pointing us to the fifth answer to the question? What's the fifth answer? Yes, God will indeed dwell with man on earth in the new heaven and the new earth. When it will no longer be just random it will no longer be portable. It will no longer be confined to a building. It will no longer even be confined to a person. It will no longer even just be the Spirit of God in us. It will be the very presence of God over and all in everything, where the very presence is the light that we live in and the air that we breathe. That's the final answer. And the final answer is supposed to do something. The final answer is supposed to motivate us in the fourth answer. The final answer of the heaven and earth that is to come when Jesus' presence spreads through all things and redeems everything that was lost in answer number one, that answer is supposed to motivate and move us in season number four. And what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to give us all of the motivation. It's supposed to give us all of the perspective that we need to do everything that Peter had just urged the believers to do right here. To abstain from the passions of the flesh. To hate sin and how it wages war against our souls. To do the hard work of confession and repentance and then to be formed by the Holy Spirit into the holy nation. And you may think this is just an individual endeavor, but nothing that I have just read is individual. It is a corporate endeavor. It is the church then coming together as one, submitting to this, and beginning to build together that heaven and earth. And though it will not exist now in perfection, We can do all that we can as the church to see the values that will operate that heaven and earth begin to operate this world now. And that is our chief aim and as our chief mission, it will be to proclaim the excellencies of the one who moves people from darkness into light, the eternal purpose of the church. Born on this day of Pentecost, thousands of years, 2,000 or so years ago, of which you and now, you and I are now the carriers of. For you and I are the temple. We are the church. We've been given a mission. And the only way we will accomplish it is when every one of us steps into it. So I want to close you today. Close with today. Walking through the prayers, I believe these texts would compel us to pray. Would you pray with me?
So Father, humility precipitates movement. So we humble ourselves before the cross right now. Would you reveal any area in our lives that is not holy? Oh, for some of us, it is a snap of a finger quick. You know. And you have cherished that sin more than you have Jesus. For others, maybe there are so many layers of pride built up, we can't even see it. Oh, would you break through? Father. And then secondly, Father, I pray that you would then begin to form us as the spiritual house that you want to form. That as each and every one of us continues to do the hard work of transformative prayer where you're rooting things out of us that need to be rooted out and you are deepening the gospel into us that you would begin to form us as your body. And Father, that as we sing these words to this song, that it would become more than a song, but it really would come the deepest, deepest cry of our hearts that more than we desire anything else, we desire that the presence of God, the one who there is no one like, that has decided to dwell with man on earth, would indeed dwell. That we would experience your presence, but we would experience it seeing lives transformed by the gospel, starting with us, afresh and anew. And so rebuild in us the longing for the pure spiritual milk. And may we shed all the malice, envy, slander, hypocrisy, and deceit that would keep us stagnant. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.